This is Genre Talk. This is Genre Talk. This is Genre Talk. Genre Talk with Brian Thomas Schmidt and Philip Vargas. And special guest, Larry Correa. I would not trade my fans for anybody else's. <laughs> my fans are awesome. Now, here are Brian Thomas Schmidt and Philip Vargas. Hello, Philip. Hello, audience. How are we doing today? And I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Oh, man. I'll tell you what. In the middle of looking at moving, even though I'm only going to actually move to the house next door, it's daunting. <laughs> I have to deal with that in the middle of also a job search. And, yeah. you know, all uh, a really full plate of projects. It's it's kind of like, and and I'm having trouble sleeping. So I'm just like, man, this is wiping me out. <laughs> I can only imagine, man. Like, I'm, you know, we're thinking about moving, you know, probably sometime next year. Like, it's not, we don't have a place yet, but we're really thinking about just buying another house and just, you know, moving out of the city. And, you know, I, I, I look at the decades worth of stuff that we've collected, you know, that's sitting in, in, in garages and in closets and, you know, storerooms. And I told my wife, like, hey, we should really start just, like, throwing stuff away or donating stuff, selling stuff, whatever we need to. We just start, need to start getting rid of stuff yeah. now, right? But one of, the things, of yeah. Yeah. one of the advantages of moving next door is the reason I have to move is that this house has some major issues with plumbing and other things. That, and my dad is like, we got to rehab the house. So he said, I'll rehab it and we'll sell it. And uh, and you can just move into this house next door, which just got rehabbed. Yeah. So the other thing is the house next door already has a, a yard. My dogs have never really had a yard. I did, just built them a small dog run, but this will be a full fenced-in yard. Oh, that's great. Uh, Dad's going to build me a two-car garage, which will be, you know, that plus a shed in the back already there, more storage space for me. So that'll that'll be good. But, you know, I want to downsize anyway, but I can do it. The beautiful part is he, he can't start renovations until I get everything out. And he's like, you know, just take your time. He said, I'm not going to start renovating the thing till till spring or summer. So it's going to sit empty. So just take your time and downsize while you move. And since I've digitized a bunch of my movie collections and things like that, I can actually start sorting out my DVDs and selling them off on eBay and, mm-hmm. you know, sorting out some, some of the books that I'm ready to get rid of and other things. I can actually take my time about it. And I've pretty much replaced everything digitally, not all my DVDs, but a lot of them. So I can just literally start selling stuff off for the cost I paid for the digital copies and downsize most of my collection. So that alone will give me enough bookshelf space to finally put away all the books. Yeah. You know, but it's, it's, it's a slightly bigger home and, and, you know, so I don't know, we'll see, but you know, it's, it's, I'm going to actually have room for a small baby grand piano, which I've always wanted to have a piano. So I'm going to have that. So anyway, it'll be a good thing. It's just, it's certainly daunting as I prepare for it. It's not what I was planning on doing this fall, but I, you know, if you're doing a transition time, like I'm in, this is actually the perfect time for it, I guess. So start fresh. So anyway, you know, and speaking of that, I actually just finished streaming. We talked about it last time. I, I just finished streaming the entire run of the Cosby Show, and um, I'm now watching Hill Street Blues and Miami Vice for the umpteenth time. Shows that I absolutely adore and that have been huge influences on me in streaming. And I'm 
reading Larry Niven's Flatlander, which is a really interesting futuristic cop story set in Topeka, Kansas. Well, it's actually set all over the place, but Topeka is kind of a, a major figure in it. And it's basically about this cop who, who lost his arm and has a, he has a virtual arm in, as well as a, as, as a, he actually got, he has two physical arms, one of which is a, you know, basically a, a replacement, which is an imp, a transplant. And, and he actually, but he actually, his original arm, he can mentally use it to do stuff, to explore stuff. So it's kind of a weird kind of take on, you know, amputation kind of thing. And uh, it's it's an interesting cocktail. And he fight his his main enemy are called organ leggers, which are people who illegally sell parts of humans to other people. So people are harvested for all their parts, and and the parts are sold off, and can be you know surgically put on anybody. So anyway, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. Uh, I. Yeah, I might have to jot that one down. That sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's called Flatlander, and it's a collection of uh, actually, it's, it's it's a series of short stories rather than an actual novel. I don't think he's ever written a novel, but it's in his main, the main, you know, what they call that, what he calls the known universe, which is is what uh, his main universe where most of his novels are set. So, Ringworld and all of them. So, anyway. It's kind of an interesting thing. What do you got going on these days with the what are you what pop culture stuff are you into? <laughs> so right now I've uh, I'm watching Marvel's uh, What If uh, series, which is kind of based off of their old comic book. You know, it's kind of a you know like What If. Yeah, I mean like the, the latest one. What if uh, um, you know Black Panther you know joined uh, you know became Star Lord, right? So it, it's really it's it's, it's an interesting little like. You know, answering these like questions of, of like you know these alt universe takes on 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 like the regular stuff that you normally see in Marvel. Huh, I haven't uh, even heard about that. What is that on? What channel? It's on uh, Disney. It's on uh, Disney. Uh, oh, of course it's on yeah, Disney. Disney. Well, Plus, that's yeah. funny that I hadn't heard of it though. Hmm. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know if you were aware of the the, the comic books from back in the day. No. You know. Yeah. So I mean, these used to be. Yeah. They would have to kind of. They would tackle a little. You know, the little ta- tackle little questions like that about like, you know what if some some fan idea that you normally would have right. Uh, so this was this was fun. I think they're the, their second. No, their third episode, which was really fun and stuff. And I think what if the Chala was like Star Lord was the second one. And I think it's like I think you it's, come up with some really funny ones. I mean, what yeah. if, what if Superman was like you know a sumo wrestler sized guy trying to fly around? I mean that'd be you know. Yeah, <laughs> this last I think the the second episode, which is uh, you know what if the Chala was like a Star Lord? I think it's I think it's Chad uh, Chadwick Boseman's last um, last performance. You know that he could. Oh, they, oh, they actually had him in it. Oh, yeah, he actually voices T'Challa in the um, in the animation and stuff. Yeah. Oh, it's an animated series. It's an animated series. Yes, exactly. It's an animated oh. series. It's beautifully animated. Uh, I think like the first one was like, what if Captain Carter were the first Avenger? The second uh, one they did was the, the uh, what if T'Challa became Star Lord, um, and I haven't watched the third one yet. But I think it's like you know, uh, what if the world lost its mightiest heroes, right? So it's like, oh, gotcha. yeah, yeah. So it's 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 it, the, the animation is beautiful, the writing is great, you know. So I mean, you take something like the second one, and I'll, and I'll you know, you know, what if T'Challa became a Star Lord, and and like suddenly, um, like all the events of that that we see in the Avenger movies would have played out. Co- Completely differently, you know. I, I, I won't say anything. You know, I won't spoil it. But it's just a just an interesting take on like this alt kind of 
that you know world that they create with this just this question of like what if. But yeah, well, I still have to get back to Loki. I haven't finished Loki and all those things, so I'm behind oh, on all. You should watch that. That is so good. The Loki stuff. I it thoroughly enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah. So, are you reading anything cool? You were reading. I think you were reading Scott Sigler's The Rookie last time we talked. So I yeah. I so I I'm, I'm reading. Yeah, I'm now reading. Uh, uh, the Starter, which I think is the second – yeah, it's the second book in his series. I think, you know, he's up to seven books. And I'm also reading Before They're Hanged by uh, Joe Abercrombie in his uh, um, first law series, which is also fantastic. I, I, I love his, his voice, uh, really digging his writing. So. You know, other stuff I've read, actually, I just booked through Richard Marks' memoir, uh, the singer Richard Marks which is called Stories to Tell. And then I read Through the Eye of the Tiger by Jim Peterick from Survivor, one of my favorite bands. And, man, they were really good reads. I mean, you know, the cool thing is, especially Richard Marks, I, I think there's only one guy he threw under the bus. And that was a guy who was – Brad Paisley was doing some – saying some stuff, uh, talking shit to him, and he just kind of said this is what he said, and, you know, it wasn't true. And he stood his ground. Basically, which isn't really you know throwing too much under the bus, just saying this is something that happened. It was it was public, so it wasn't like he would you know there was there there were witnesses to it, so it wasn't you know like just his side of the story kind of thing. And and then there was really interesting stories about all the different people he's worked with, just amazing people that he worked with, and the funny behind the scenes little anecdotes and stuff. And I just I I got so hooked on it, I stayed up all night and read that book. One night, finished at like five in the morning, and then had to try to figure out how to sleep. And then Jim Petrick's book—I didn't let myself do that, but I did. I did read that, and it was about you know his his experience in Ides of March, and then um, later in Survivor, why Survivor broke up, and then you know going back with Ides of March again, and just you know his whole long career as a songwriter working with 38 special and all these other different people and just his, his amazing talent. And I, you know, it was fun. I, some of these rock and roll memoirs actually end up being pretty fun. They're not, some of them can be pretty boring and some of them can feel like the same old crap, but yeah. you know, this wasn't about drug use or sleeping around. This was, you know, more, far more interesting stuff. And, uh, and I really enjoyed those. So if people want to read about those, so I'll tell you what, I can recommend both those books. Anyway, this week's guest also will give you some great reads. He's got several series, and he's a guy that, full disclaimer, I have, uh, full disclosure, I should, should say it's also a disclaimer, uh, I have worked with, um, named Larry Correa. So we sat down with him for about an hour right after his most recent book tour, and his latest uh, uh, Monster Hunter Bloodlines just came out. So he's going to tell you all about that and more, and we look forward to sharing it with you. So we'll just go on into it right now. This is John Talk. Larry Korea is the New York Times bestselling author of 25 novels. He's best known for his Monster Hunter International Urban Fantasy series, the Saga of Forgotten Warrior epic fantasy series, the Grim Noir Chronicles alternate history trilogy, his Dead Six military thrillers, and the sci-fi book Gunrunner, which is one of his more recent releases. He's also written over 60 pieces of shorter fiction, many of which are included in his Target Rich Environment collections, 
of which he so far has two, and he has edited three anthologies. He lives in Yardmoose Mountain, Utah, with his wife, children, and the fearsome Krasnovian Waffle Hound. Larry, welcome to Genre Talk. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. So you just got back from tour. How was the How was the rest of the tour? I saw him. I saw Larry in, in Kansas City uh, a week or so ago. How was the rest of your tour? It was nuts. Uh, by the time I turned the rental car in, it had four thousand and seventy one miles on that trip. Wow. Really? It was It was crazy. Uh, so I started in Minneapolis. I hit cities all along the way, all the way down to New Orleans. So basically just bisected America and then back up into Missouri. Yeah, and you had to you had to carry some books with you because the second stop, Kansas City, they didn't get their order in. So did you have any more crisis <laughs> with books? No, no, it was good because I, I grabbed several cases and I had a uh, – my rental car was a Tahoe. So I had plenty of trunk space and I had uh, extra ba- uh, extra books if anybody else ran out. And then uh, whatever I had at the end, I just left at the last bookstore. <laughs> gotcha. Well, I'm glad everything worked out. It was sure fun to see you. So, you know, a lot of people don't know who haven't seen you in person or met you, but, you know, you're you're basically just a big old fanboy at heart. So getting started, you <laughs> yeah. know, besides the tour, what what are the things that you fanboyed over as a kid? Oh, um, my gosh. I I have gone through every phase of nerdiness you can think of. Uh, you know, I was a poor country kid growing up in the middle of nowhere. We had a little tiny library, so I read a lot. Uh, that's what I did to get by. I started out with westerns, uh, believe it or not. <laughs> and I, I then I discovered fantasy novels with uh, Sword of Shannara when I was a kid and uh, kind of went nuts from there. Got into D&D, uh, love role-playing games. Basically jumped from thing to thing. I love sci-fi. I got into Bayon books, actually, when I was in high school. And started reading those. My fa- my very first Bayon novel that I purchased, which is funny because I write for him now. First Bayon novel I purchased with my own money was in 1985. Uh, I bought it from a little supermarket <laughs> paperback spinner. And uh, I got into Hammer Slammers uh, shortly after that. Thoroughly enjoyed so what that. Was the first book? Was the first book, the first book was Spinners, oh. you said? No, it's Fanglyph by John Dalmas. Ah. Uh, kind of a sci-fi slash uh gets uh you know time not time travel but like uh future people get stuck in medieval europe uh kind of thing and it was the very first book i read of bands when i was a kid and then uh then it was the collect the hammer slammers collection of like four novellas together that was the second one i bought yeah <laughs> it's just it's kind of gone downhill from there for me <laughs> Yeah, well, not 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 really, because you got. I mean, as a child, it, you know, it's kind of fun to sign with a publisher that you've heard of as a kid. You know, that's always kind of a. At least I always thought yeah, it was, it was kind of cool. It's like it was like it was really my favorite them. thing. It was my favorite type of book to read, and that's who eventually I wound up writing for later, many yeah. many years later. Well, you've had some interesting, um, an interesting past life. Let's say you've been an accountant, you were a gun dealer, you've done a lot of different things. But you know, oh you, yeah. What did you study in school? Did you study writing? Um, what What was your kind of your your educational background? Uh, no, I actually I got my uh, I got my degree in accounting, and uh, so my very first professional career was right was uh, was being an accountant. I never took any writing classes. I failed at English my whole life. I was really really terrible at English. Um, I think every creative writing assignment I ever had, I totally blew it. <laughs> I think it was 
awful at that stuff, but I love to read. And uh, I, uh, I tried to write my first novel when I was in college, and it was terrible. And then I took about 10 years off to go have a career and a family, and, uh, and then I, I got the urge to try it again. And uh, that's, that's, that time it stuck, and that, that was about 12 years ago I've been doing this. <laughs> but uh, during that time, I, I worked in the gun business. I was a firearms instructor. I was a machine gun dealer. Uh, I was an auditor. Uh, I was a defense contractor. I bounced around. Uh, I've always kind of been a workaholic. And uh, that, that, so that, that translates well into being a writer. You stepped sure. away from writing for like a long, for a while from that from that first novel. Were you thinking about writing during that like ten year period, or you know? I was. Um, I like to read a ton, and I always kind of in the back of my mind wanted to give it a shot again. So the thing, I, the first thing I ever wrote was a thriller, and it was just terrible. It wasn't very good. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, later on, I took all the good parts of that and put them in other books. But um, what got me was I was reading. Um, some other books. Uh, they were like top bestsellers, New York Times bestsellers. And I just remember thinking, man, these are not very good. I could do better than this. I am pretty sure I am a better writer than this guy who is selling millions of books. I got, I've got to try this again. And then I did, and I had a lot of fun with it. And uh, Actually, the first thing I ever did is I, I, tried to, I tried to submit it everywhere, and I got rejected across the board. You know, pretty, pretty normal stuff. I got rejected 100 times, I think 120 times. Uh, all the agents rejected me. All the publishing houses rejected me. Uh, and then I self-published my first book, and uh, I, I, I promote Monster Hunter International, and I promoted it on internet gun forums. That's <laughs> how I launched my career: was uh, selling my fancy, explodey monster shooting action book to to an audience of gun nuts, and uh, that was awesome. That, that, that's how I that's how I started out. Well, part of this is because you use you use a lot of your your knowledge to to be research for your books. I mean, you wrote a story about an accountant turned monster monster hunter, so boom, <laughs> there's research right there. And then you yeah, know, I, you I wasn't the, trying to marry Sue it, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you're you're really you you really write guns accurately as opposed to some people. You know what you're talking about. So a lot of this is stuff that that appeals because of the fact that you actually you know, have that background and have all that research and, and know your subject matter. So, you know, tell us a little bit about Owen. Owen Zastava Pitt is the uh, the main hero, kind of your, your doppelganger for uh, who's the accountant that was kind of the Monster Hunter International guy. So tell us a little bit about, you know, Owen and, and the genesis of all of that. Where'd you get the idea for an accountant who turns Monster Hunter? <laughs> well, when I, when I wrote my first book, what it was, was I was kind of inspired. What inspired it was um, I was on these internet gun forums, and we would always joke around about how, like, most horror movies would be over in a matter of minutes if they starred our people rather than regular people. You know, because, like, oh, there's a monster, it's scary, and boom, you know, roll credits, problem solved. And so I started thinking about how fun it would be to do a novel about, you know, perspective of those kind of people, like my kind of people uh, in that kind of world. I went with uh, an accountant uh, for one big reason. It wasn't like a personal thing, but it's because I knew that accounting was considered the stereotyp the most stereotypical possible boring mundane job you could have. And so the idea, so it struck me as funny to have a guy who is an accountant because it's such a boring job, but have that be the guy who gets exposed to this big supernatural secret world. Uh, and then the gun nuttery was just because you know, that was the whole you know, idea of the first book was to take these hardcore gun nuts, training nerds, guys who blow stuff up for fun, which is what I was, which is what I was, which is what I did for fun, 
and uh, just run with that. And so I created this character that was an accountant slash massive competitive gun nut fighting guy, which, you know, that's also my background. I love that stuff. And so I, I took a guy with these skill sets, only with his very mundane job, all of a sudden thrust him into this world of uh, absolute craziness. And uh, it, it stuck. It, it worked really, really good. That, that book was a big hit. Uh, it kind of blew up, and I launched my career. Uh, I launched my career from there, and uh, the rest is history. It was a lot of fun, and so, and that's a character I've now written about in I believe eight novels, and so it's uh, you know <laughs> you get a little more depth in there uh, as you go. But uh, no, I I thoroughly enjoy, I love right now, and he's one of my favorite characters of all time. Now, besides Owen, which is sort of like you've written like what, eight novels now, there's also like uh, you got you know there's a couple of other characters there like Julie Shackelford. You know, which is uh, she also wrote, I guess, a co-wrote a novel with uh, uh, Sarah Hoyt, and there's like three Monster Hunter memoirs with like apparently a fourth incoming, then an anthology, uh, Monster Hunter Files, which you, uh, which is I guess co-edited with uh, with Brian, and your latest uh, Owen novel is is Bloodline, correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, Just came out last week. Yeah, and it's in which Owen and his uh, his his MHI squad uh, kind of attempt to. Uh, obtained one of Isaac Newton's uh, ward stones, like in hopes of destroying the uh, the demon Asog uh, once and for all. So I guess, like, spoiler-free, like, who is Asog? And tell us a little bit about the mythology of, like, ward stones. Um, okay, so so he, uh, this this big chaos demon monster, basically is uh, a recurring villain in the series. He's kind of the main big bad of the series. Uh, we've run in, and there's, there's several big bads in this series. Yeah. And uh, they've run into him repeatedly. They, they, in the previous books, have kind of gone to war against this guy. Only he's not a um, – so when I set it up, I thought people thought he'd be like a big monster smash Godzilla kind of monster. But instead, he's actually kind of a clever trickster planner. You know, the guy's been around for millions of years. He, he's pretty smart. And uh, so that's what they're up against. Uh, but he's also basically unkillable and uh, hops from body to body. And so in the mythology of the monster universe, Isaac Newton uh, actually fought monsters. And the reason mankind didn't get destroyed during his era, uh, uh, you know, by, by various external forces was Isaac Newton, the alchemist, came up with these basically magical super weapons that could either, you know, keep monsters away or, or could be used offensively and you blow them up like a great big supernatural bomb. And uh, we used one, you know, no spoilers, but we used one earlier in the series to great effect. Uh, but they're they're very very rare, uh, and so the plot of Bloodlines is one of these has uh, turned up, uh, one of these has uh, come available, and uh, so it's it's basically a, a a race against time, if you will, a fight between a bunch of different factions over who can claim this incredible treasure, uh, and the Monster Hunter International wants it so they can blow up the big bad. And uh, that's that's what the the book is about, and it's the whole book takes place over like thirty hours. It's it's very fast. This was a very fast paced one. It's nuts. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean I've always loved stories where you can kind of really compress time, you know, that way. Uh, the, oh yeah. The sense of urgency there, uh, which I which I always dig. So you know, and, and like any kind of I guess monster hunting squad, you have a pretty pretty uh, 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 cool uh, you know cast of characters you have you know there's Owen and there's his love interest Julie her uncle Earl and even like a fed named uh, Franks so for new readers can you kind of tell us a little bit about your uh, the regular cast there 
Oh, yeah, it's got a great crew, and uh, I've been able to develop this over a lot of books. So, like, the Monster Hunter National is a company. Uh, it's a private, privately-owned company. It's a family business. Uh, it's run by the Shackelford family uh, from Alabama, and they are, you know, professional monster hunters going back to the late 1800s. And uh, so so several of the characters are from that family, and, uh, like, the director of operations is a guy named Earl Harbinger. Don't want to give too much away about Earl. Great character. People of. Uh, he got his own novel called Monster Hunter Alpha several years ago. Uh, Julie Shackelford is Owen's love interest slash wife. They get married. Uh, she's the heir uh, the, of the family, and uh, she's the, now the as of in the series, she's now the person running the company. Monster Hunter Guardians about her. Agent Franks is kind of their nemesis. He's uh, he's the federal agent. They can't give too much away about Franks. Yeah. Wonderful character. Super fun to write. Hates everyone and everything in the universe. Love the guy. No, then there's just a, there's the crew of monster hunters that have been consistent characters since the beginning. We've got to know them really well. Uh, there's um, uh, Holly, uh, Trip, Milo. Uh, there's just this crew. There, there's Edward and Skippy, <laughs> Gretchen. Uh, just a, just a great crew of characters that that I've been able to develop all this, all this time. I think you mentioned briefly the files that I did with Brian. They were great, and we we were able to to expand on a bunch of different characters by bringing in a bunch of different authors, the, the, their takes on them. The memoirs uh, are actually spin-off novels that take place in different periods of time in the Monster Hunter universe. Uh, written, those are going to be co-written with other authors. Uh, I've done through John Ringo about a character named Chad, and then there's a new one coming out with uh, Jason Cordova next year called Monster Hunter Fever, or Monster Hunter Memoirs Fever, uh, 1970s Los Angeles, uh, with another another character uh, that we've not met, but we've mentioned. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a huge cast of characters. Uh, a big part of Bloodlines is I get to, to, to get into two other characters that are they're, uh, very, very... Uh, they've been dealt with a lot, but we haven't really got to know them yet. And so don't want to give too much away there, but I don't know. I'm a character writer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, is the, are the new memoirs with Jason going to be also a trilogy, kind of like what you did with Ringo, or are they, or is it just one book so far? Uh, it's one book so far, but it's definitely it's definitely set up in a manner to, to be multiple books. Uh, yeah. It's definitely set up in a manner to be a trilogy. Um, like 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 the like the Ringo ones. Uh, as of right now, it's just the one is all we've got under contract. Uh, but yeah, that's that's what it looks like. Is there will probably be multiples. Yeah. Now the main series, which is you know, which is obviously still ongoing. Uh, I understand that like you had a I guess a series outline like from the start. Now has that kind of changed or evolved now that you're you know several novels uh, into it? Oh, gosh, yeah, it totally evolved. So what happened is I originally had an idea for five books. I had a, kind of like the five-book series idea. and had a basic plot for the whole thing, like, a, like an overall arc. Uh, but then what happened is as I started writing it, we had these side characters that were really super popular. Um, and I asked Tony Weisskopf, my publisher, I was like, would, would you like me to write the next one of these you know, main series, or would you like me to write a spinoff novel about Earl Harbinger, Monster Hunter Alpha? And she said, give me Alpha. And I, I did. And that was wildly popular. And so when I started doing spin-off novels, all of a sudden the universe grew exponentially. So I actually I, I know we're about where we are in the series. Uh, I can't tell you how many books are left on the main story arc, but there's there's still several. Uh, but yeah, so the, my original thing just kind of expanded once we did the spin-offs and the, the memoirs and the files. And so now the universe has gotten rather large. It's really popular. So 
there is an end. Uh, there is an end to the series, uh, but I don't know. I don't know how many more books it's going to be before I get there. Yeah, I mean, when you say there's an end to the series, I mean, I imagine you're, you, you know, uh, a lot of it has to do with like I guess the end to the to the main storyline you're telling. But like like you said, like you 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 you've obviously written cast of characters that people want to know more about. So it almost feels like as long as there's always interesting characters, always has something interesting to say. And you got this like deep history. There's like I guess there's always an opportunity to tell stories in your world, though, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's yeah. that. That's the thing. So even when I say the end, it'll be the end of the main series, the Owen uh, arc. Uh, that has an end planned. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, so the universe can keep going. I mean, there's all sorts of stories to tell, and so many cool ideas to explore. So that'll still be around for a while. Yeah, and, and as a writer, like that's that's one of the coolest things. It's like you create not just a a cool story, but a cool world where, where, where like even other writers can explore. I mean, that that's really great. That's awesome. Oh yeah, I struck gold on this one. I got really lucky. <laughs> yeah. So how long does it like take you to write a novel? And do you have any kind of like favorite writing tools like Scrivener that you use? Uh, I just use Microsoft Word. <laughs> I mean, I've never messed around with anything else. I've this is just been using the same thing the whole time. It takes me about four to six months to write a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, collaborative novels actually take longer than uh, than a regular novel. But, yeah, about four to six months on average is, is what it takes me. Um, I've averaged about two books a year now for 12 years. Is, uh, is, I'm, I'm pretty consistent. Well, one of the things you mentioned earlier I wanted to expand on was you're talking about kind of your interesting journey to publication. You started – self-publishing MHI, and you built your audience through the gun forums and some of the groups you were involved with before you got offered the contract with Bain. And you have kind of a core audience, which is like 50K plus strong, maybe maybe more, I don't, I don't remember. You know, so how did, you know, just, just to help other authors get an idea, how did you go about building such a core fan base? I mean, you, obviously it started with the gun nuts, but what, were, what was your kind of, was there a methodology to it or was it just kind of luck? I think a lot of it is, was – well, luck definitely plays a part always, but a part of it too is just personality and hustle. I genuinely, I genuinely like people. I like my fans, and I'm very open. I communicate a lot, uh, probably more so than most writers, and I'm, I'm obnoxiously upbeat. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of – I'm one of those people. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I get angry, and I, I'm mean to people too, but uh, no, I mean, I, I have fun. Um, so my social media presence primarily is like, I, I have to have a good time. I pick a lot of fights. Um, uh, but over time, uh, my audience has grown and grown. I mean, the main thing is you just got to keep giving them quality entertainment and you got to keep getting better and better. Um, but I, I have always interacted with my fans. I've always been honest with my fans and open with them. So basically the audience has just slowly and consistently grown over the years until it's kind of now kind of a hardcore Fan base. I, I would not trade my fans for anybody else's. <laughs> my fans are awesome, uh, and they get along really well. <laughs> they tend to like, they tend to uh, do get-togethers. We have internet forums that they're on. Uh, there's a there's a giant Facebook page, uh, about ten thousand people on there that just hang out and shoot the bull and tell jokes. And no, I I, I, I don't really have a. Uh, I can't tell other people to emulate what I've done because a lot of it is just stuff that would, it works for me, but I don't know if it'd work for other people. You know, it just, it's, it's just, it's just my personality. It's yeah. kind well, of how, it's more than one, how it's set up. More than one Facebook page. The main page, what's the main, which one's the main page? 
Uh, it's uh, Monster Hunter uh, International Hunters Unite. Is, okay. is the is, is the page. Uh, and then I got my one blog as well. That's also very active. So I just thought we should make sure people know exactly which page to go to. Yeah, the Hunters Unite one is the official one. The thing is, though, Facebook. Uh, I think our days are numbered there because <laughs> Facebook has no sense of humor and hates everything and everyone and sucks. And uh, I mean, I'm banned. Come on, I've been banned like. You know, I think this is my seventh. I'm on my, I'm on my seventh or eighth thirty day ban right now, uh, and my fan page, everything, funny memes, jokes, things keep getting flagged and pulled, and so the people have a great deal of fun with that, basically trying to you know provoke the censors. <laughs> well, and part of it is part of it is you do have some detractors who definitely are out to get you, so that doesn't help either. Oh man, I have got haters. Uh, but yeah. also, that's one thing too is like I, I can't tell people to follow what I do because I I go head on uh, when I have a hater, when I have people who don't like me, they want to fight, they want to talk trash. I mean, the polite thing to do is to ignore them, you know, to move on, and that's what works for most writers. Most writers aren't confrontational. Uh, I, I I come from Portuguese dairy farmers, and so we're the opposite of polite and non-confrontational. <laughs> so. Yeah. If people want to pick fights with me, I'm happy to go over there and headbutt them. You know, that's just how I roll. So, uh, but I've also been very public about that, and the fans kind of enjoy that, having somebody who will stand up uh, and fight. So, I, I don't know. I, I have a lot of fun with it, but I don't recommend that for most writers because most writers aren't that confrontational. Well, and you're also, you also have a really strong fan base that you can withstand, you know, any of the negative impact, which helps. I mean, in some ways. Yeah, that's the that's the main thing. Because I, if I have you know one or two people out there talking trash and talk about a horrible person, is I have several hundred who immediately will stand up like, no, no, you're full of crap, you know. Yeah. And it's that's one thing I've had going for me when I started drawing these people's ire is I, because I didn't come at this business from the traditional publishing uh, background, I wasn't really beholden to that. I was kind of an outsider, and so I was able to use my outsider status because. There was nothing really that the gatekeepers could do to keep me out because they had no power over me. I didn't. I didn't need them for anything. I had my own fans. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what drew you to urban fantasy and monster stories in particular? Are those the type of stories that you enjoyed most growing up? I mean, who? Are, what? What? What made you want to write monsters? And who are some of your, you know, inspirations as authors? Other authors. See, so that's actually kind of funny because I, I. <laughs> I had not really read much uh, stuff that would be considered urban fantasy. I mean, mostly in my background, what I'd read, it would be considered traditional fantasy, epic fantasy, heroic fantasy, sword, sword and sorcery, uh, that kind of thing, and thrillers. I'd read a lot of thrillers. And so I just kind of came at this sideways, but I had a – so not really a fiction or not really a reading side of thing, but I love monster movies. I love low-budget B-horror movies. I always have. Uh, they're my guilty pleasure. And cheesier and cheaper, the better. I'm all in. I've watched tens of thousands of them. Uh, and so when I started doing this, it was just kind of a logical outgrowth of the gun nuttery meets monster movies. And uh, it wasn't until I'd been doing this for a while that I actually wrote thrillers and I wrote epic fantasy and I moved another series. But yeah, no, so I started out doing something that I had not read much. And so my background in the genre is basically zilch. Yeah, so really kind of weird there. <laughs> well, no, what, one of the things that drew me to the series, when I, I, I first encountered your stuff when I interviewed you for this Twitter chat I did a long time ago called Science Fiction Fantasy Writers Chat. 
And so they sent me the uh, the omnibus of the first three Monster Hunter books, and I started reading them. And the coolest thing for me, what really got me excited about it, was not only your sense of humor, which is clear. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of laughs in, in your stories. But you did something totally different with every monster that came up. You, you used orcs. You used gnomes. You used some of the monsters we've seen before. But none of them were the way we've ever seen them before. It was a really great constant inter- inverting the tropes thing that you did that was real. I mean, you have gnomes that are basically the equivalent of gun-toting trailer trash. I mean, that's not the gnome, that's not the garden gnomes that everybody's ever, you know, seen in these folk stories. It, I mean, it was just really fun and interesting the way you twisted all the monsters. So, you know, tell us a little bit about some of that and, and, and where those ideas originated. Well, I, I really enjoy taking, taking you know, the traditional folklore ideas, the monster ideas, and then some of them I play straight. Some of them I play pretty much, you know, as tradition. Others I flip and I have some fun with, especially the folklore ones. So, like, what I did with gnomes is I was, I was doing research, and if you get into the old folk tales of gnomes, they're very different than what we have, like a modern interpretation of the cute, rosy-cheeked, you know, garden gnomes. Because uh, back in the old days, you would leave out sacrifices for your gnomes, and the gnomes would protect your farm, but you had to sacrifice to the, you know, you had to leave out porridge for the gnomes or they would straight up burn your barn down or kill your cows. Bad things would happen to you. And so basically it struck as like, wow, it's the mafia. <laughs> I mean, mom, I mean, they were basically gnomes were out there, you know, charging protection. It's like, Ooh, nice farm. Nice farm you've got here. It'd be real shame if something bad were to happen to it, you know? So people paid right. their protection money to the gnomes. And so when I started writing modern gnomes, I just kind of ran with that. And I, I had a very, had this kind of gangster thug, organized crime kind of vibe to the gnomes. And then the elves, <laughs> I did trailer park elves. And where that came from was my wife was reading a fantasy novel uh, while I was working on the first Monster Hunter. And uh, she, she got to this part with elves and she just kind of put down the book in exasperation and sighed and I asked her what was wrong and she said I'm just so sick and tired of elves are always the same elves are always the same in books they're always just spin-offs of Tolkien elves they're always great and wise and and so beautiful and so smart just once I'd like to see somebody do something different with elves like but you know why aren't there redneck elves (laughs) and she said that and I was like that's genius (laughs) And, you know, I lived in Alabama and Mississippi. I, you know, I knew my way around that culture. And I was like, oh, hell yeah, let's have some fun with that. And I did. You know, it's, it's just, so the elves were actually the first thing I did in MHI with that, the whole flipping, flipping the expectations. And uh, I just kind of ran with it from there. And had a, I've had a lot of fun with that over the years. Like you've got, I, I think it's, is it Skippy that's the, the orc? Oh, yeah. Guy? Yeah, Skippy. I love Skippy. <laughs> yeah, Skippy's fun, and and, and he, he also you have a lot of fun with his, you know, he, he his his style of English is hard to understand at times too. So it's kind of a trick. So that there's a lot of fun with some of that too, you know, that you have. Yeah, so I've, I've gotten I mean, a lot of I've gotten a lot of humor out of the fact that Skippy doesn't speak good English. Yeah, because uh, he's an, and he, everything has a very orc perspective. <laughs> yeah, to, to everything he observes. Yeah, it's just a lot of fun. So that's one of the things I loved about it. If, you know, you, you, you're seeing familiar monsters, but they're not exactly all ex- as you expect them to be. And it's just a lot of fun because it's very inventive. So that's one of the things I definitely think readers will, if they have, people who haven't stumbled on this series, would really enjoy. 
for fans by fans. This is Genre Talk. Questions or comments? Find a Genre Talk on Facebook at Genre Talk Podcast. Now, back to the show. In addition to writing, you're also known as a, a, a gamer, which is something I kind of relate to since I, I write actually for a gaming company. And oh, I heard cool. you even create your own miniatures. Uh, what are some of your, like, I guess your favorite games and how does that influence your <laughs> miniatures? Oh uh, well, well. First of all, I'm I'm a I'm a role playing nerd. I mean, I I'm I'm sitting here in my office and I'm I'm looking at like my eight shelves of RPG books. But uh, my tabletop game that I play, I started out with War Machine uh, okay. many years ago. But I actually, I got into I got into Infinity. I love Infinity. That's a sci-fi skirmish game, and uh, I've got enough painted minis, I think, to field something like I think I'm up to like forty armies simultaneously without. <laughs> I mean, I'm not joking. I've got several thousand painted minis here. Uh, and then I make my own. Um, I'm a kit basher. Uh, I've actually, you know, uh, I'm really good at that. I mean, I'm a pretty good painter. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not top tier, though. You know, I'm not, I'm not winning any Golden Demon Awards or anything. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a good painter, but I'm a really super good kit basher. So I, I take minis and I chop them into pieces and uh, basically just I, I do little tiny metal puzzles. And I... I sculpt with green stuff, you know, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, I have a lot of fun with that. And uh, usually whenever I run a role-playing game campaign, most of the characters will wind up with kit bash minis to match whatever their, you know, whatever the players come up with. And uh, uh, I, have, I have a lot of fun with that. I, I'm, I, it's, it's kind of what I do. It's my zen thing that I do to uncork my brain and get away from writing. Oh, man. I – so – there's a lot of a few writers at work that are big into minis, and and I am always in awe of like the work they do, the the amount of time that uh, many like you know fans of like miniatures and go go into like the amount of time and detail of painting stuff and and, and terrains that you guys will create. Like I am like always just uh, for me it's it's very much like a, a spectator sport, just watching it. It's, 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 <laughs> Amazing. I'm such a sucker for it. I, I yeah. can't help it. It's what I do. I don't even watch TV, really. What I do is I, I listen to TV. So, like, I have a painting station and workstation downstairs where my kids watch TV. And they'll, like, watch television programs, but I never actually watch them with my eyes because I'm always there painting, Yeah. you know? Uh, and, and so I every now and then I'll, like, look at something and like, oh, wow, so that's what that looks like. <laughs> Now imagine I imagine you probably have designed a few minis based on your own uh IP, your own world that you've created. A few, but you know, surprisingly for the most part I don't because I, I stay I try not to cross the streams, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, so like like so I do the mini thing because it's not related to what I do for work all day, you know? Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so, so you well, don't I have a whole set of MHI minis. No, I don't. Uh, yes. I very specifically do not. <laughs> Just because of that. Every now and then I'll do something that will be inspired by one of my works. You know, but for the most part, I, I, I don't. Just because I, I do, I do, I'm immersed in my imaginary worlds all day, every day. So it's nice to go away from mine and go into somebody else's, you know, and, yeah. and, and escape. 
I mean, let me ask you this. Have you ever thought about or even just the plans of, like, a tabletop game for your, of your own world? Yes and no comment. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's all I can say about that. That would be that would be awesome if a company was to love my stuff and want to do something like that. Uh, and that's all I can say. <laughs> well, he, you know, you built you built your own home recently, which is the you know Yard Moose Mountain, and I know you've showed off like pictures to your fans of of the gaming room and all the stuff you built. I mean, you got these big gaming tables. You got I mean, you're like you know. You, you, oh, yeah, my game room is legend. Manzanella would have a great time hanging out. Yeah, my my game room. Um, I, I basically I have enough tables in my game room. It's basically the size of a good game store. I could do a I could do a twenty person war game tournament in here, uh, and ha- and have actually have enough tables, um, and terrain to do that. So, yeah, my office my game room's kind of nuts. Uh, and you but- do have <laughs> you do have a group of of many of them are fellow authors that you hang out with that you do gaming with, as I understand it, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Not as much as any of us would like, but but we try to like at least once a month uh, do an RPG night. And yeah. uh, well, boy, twenty twenty on with COVID screwed that up for us. But, <laughs> but yeah. we were having a really good run before that. Before half of us got sick and about died. Uh, but no, so yeah, we're actually I got a role playing game in here tonight. Uh, that I so when I when I hang up with you guys, I actually have to clean and vacuum my office. <laughs> Because <laughs> I got I got people coming over. Well, no, because I've heard about it from. I mean, I know a lot of those authors as well, so I've heard about it more from them than I have from you. But a lot of them have told me about it, so I knew that was going on. So it's kind of it's kind of one of your fun things, and and you also run games at conventions. Oh yeah, I do a lot of charity games at conventions. So what I'll do is, um, you know, because convention always have like a charity auction, I'll have them auction off seats for the game, and then I'll run like a you know six hour game one night. And I, I take a lot of pride in the fact that that's been like the, the biggest charity earner for, for most of the cons I've gone to where I do that at. And uh, I, I run a few different things, but by very specifically, I have one I designed myself specifically for con games, and it's called Gritty Cop Show. Gritty Cop Show, the role-playing game. And it's basically everything you need to know about the setting is in the title. <laughs> it's, yeah. And so I, I, I do that a lot. And I'm actually, uh, because of, popular I, I will be I, i'm developing that i, I will be releasing that because that, that one's actually a lot of fun that's a hoot and so that's kind of a side project it's back burner i i, I gotta get to i'm too busy writing you know real books to, to finish my game but um no I'm, I'm a i'm a total dork for that kind of stuff and i find it goes really well it goes really hand in hand with writing because you know you've got those kind of creative people who are into that kind of stuff and uh, it's a really good way to come up with cool ideas and cool interactions and cool dialogue. And, and so I, I find that the gaming actually feeds my writing creativity. I, I write better when I get to game, if that makes well, sense. Well, I know authors that use it to work out, like, plot ideas, too. Like, they'll come up with a, a an RPG module and play it out to see how it works and then come up with their ideas to refine their plot, too. So I know it yeah. you know, definitely is something that inspires a lot of writers, and I – most of the writers that I know, especially in science fiction and fantasy, all have an RPG background. Most of us are D and D, you know, from when we were kids. So yep. it, it's well, kind of it's kind of fun. Kind of There's of course many other things now. So yeah, well, I mean, you think I, I think one one brain is good. Yeah. Six brains, six or seven brains, you know, collaboratively storytelling together. You come up with some really creative, cool stuff. The funny thing is when you play with a bunch of other novelists. 
when someone says like a really amazing line, you all kind of like eyeball each other to see who's going to steal it first. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, the other, oh, the other thing you've done now, your gritty cop show, which you mentioned, is is kind of tied into the universe of Gunrunner, which is one of your latest novels, right? Well, actually, uh, no. So, 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 the gritty cop show, the game is not, but I, I, it did actually inspire a science fiction story uh, that said it's coming out from Audible in October. And so, basically, I, I um, uh, so the game totally separate, but like some of the events of a game gave me some ideas for a short story or for a novella that I did for Audible. But it's set in the Gunrunner universe. It's a science fiction story, but it's a basically space greedy cop show story. It's uh, a murder mystery on a lost colony, and uh, it, it's called it's called Lost Planet Homicide, and that'll be out in October. And it came out really super good, so I'm actually hoping people like this. Uh, I, ho- I hope this does really well because I'd, I'd like to do more of these novellas uh, for Audible, and I'm actually kind of excited about that. So we'll see what happens there. Fingers crossed. Yeah, basically for me a, now, whenever I do projects, it just depends on how good it does, if I have the time to do more of them. Sure. Well, one of the interesting developments in publishing is the way that audio books have really taken off. It's become one of the biggest, sector, fastest growing you know, sectors in publishing. So it's got to be unique to to be a guy who's used to you know telling stories in prose and have them now. They're, they're going to audio before they even go to print. Oh, yeah. I love audio. If I, I, I do really good in audio. If I could do in regular books what I do in audio, I'd be on top of the world. Uh, I love audio. And it's actually helped me be a better writer, too, because I listen to my books on audio. And stilted dialogue and, and unnecessary dialogue tags, and any rough edges are very, very obvious when narrated aloud as opposed to when you read them yourself editing. So I found that actually listening to my stuff in audio has made me a better writer. Um, so I love audiobooks. I actually yeah. I listen to audiobooks more than I read, uh, just because my my writer brain goes into edit mode when I read other people's books, which is not fun. Uh, yeah. But I can't I can't edit an audiobook, <laughs> so I can listen to other people's books and I'm fine. It's uh, true. I find that too. Purpose, you know, it's really hard to shut off the the craft aspect. So you're always analyzing and looking at what they're doing and thinking of ways you would have done it differently or or look at absolutely problems and. So you can't really enjoy the read. That's why I read outside genre a lot because I'm less familiar with those genres. It's easier for me to just immerse myself. You yeah. Know? Well, and especially so if it, if there's if it's rough in any way, your brain keys off that, and so you're not immersed anymore. And then it's, and even if it's really good, like it's a really well written book, you start going, "Oh, I see what you did there. That was clever." <laughs> you know. Right. And, and, so and you're still you start, breaking immersion. Then you start looking for all the pieces that led up to it because you're like, "Okay, where did he put?" You know. Where are the seeds, yep. and how did this work? Because that was really cool how that just came up on me like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, so we're going through, and we're, like, breaking down the nuts and bolts rather than just right. being immersed in the story. Right, and, 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 then, that, and then that kind and of that destroys sucks. the reading experience. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. Well, so who are some authors you enjoy, I guess, listening to or slashing reading that are some of your favorites? Oh, that, oh that's a hard one. Okay, so um, I'm a Jim Butcher fan. I love Jim. He's so talented. He's such a talented dude. And I mean, a super nice guy too. Uh, currently what, I, what I'm reading right now, I just read uh, about halfway through Aaron Haskins, uh, AC Haskins, Blood and Whispers, uh, Soldier of the Arcanum. It's really good so far, but it's also got kind of a Dresden Files vibe. If Dresden had PTSD and uh, alcoholism. <laughs> and 
I think best new sci-fi I've read recently is Christopher Rocchio. Uh, writes for Daw. Holy crap. He is a prose master. He, he reminds me, like, honestly, of Frank Herbert, only I think he's better. He's a, he's a better wordsmith. Uh, and he's also better with characters. I kid you not. Young guy. He's only got three books out. But, yeah, Christopher Rocchio, very, very super good. Oh, so the stuff I stuff that influenced me growing up. Actually, the biggest ones uh, were Louis L'Amour, <laughs> which was probably the biggest single influence of my young life. And then going from there, oh my gosh, all the all the big epic fantasy ones. Everybody's heard of you, know, uh, your Terry Brooks, David Eddings, uh, Ray Feist, uh, all those Tolkien, obviously. Oh, and then um, for me big influences were actually I'd say Raymond Chandler because I went on to write Grim Noir uh, because of Raymond Chandler and then Robert E. Howard uh, Son of the Black Sword would not exist without Robert E. Howard I, I really I really like Robert E. Howard uh, yeah. I thoroughly enjoy and thoroughly enjoy that stuff um, wow there's a lot <laughs> sure well you're a, you're obviously a reading fan like I am so of course yeah there's tons of authors that you would that that question I knew would evoke a long list, but yeah, that's great. So, one of the things you also do that's really cool is is collaborate with a lot of other authors. Jim Butcher, for example, was in the Monster Hunter Files that we did, and uh, is you know often you tell me guessing your plots on different things, and you go back and forth. Oh, he so, is so. I think I'm clever, and I have something set up like like in the future I'm going to reveal. And Jim is the one guy. He's like, I bet this is this, and he's always a hundred percent right. <laughs> No matter how clever I think I am, the dude yeah. is good. Yeah, but can you do the same for him? Yeah, but not as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so tell us about like you. I know you did Monster Hunter Morris with with uh, with uh, John Ringo. You've done stuff with Sarah Hoyt. You've written with Mike Kupari and a lot of other people. What's your collaborating process? How does that work? Is there any any tips you have for other authors on successful collaboration? Because collaboration really is a challenge for some people, and it is an art form. Oh yeah, I um, I've done it. I've done it more than most people. Uh, I'm pretty sure, but each each one is going to be a little bit different. Uh, it's all going to come down to basically who, you got to have somebody who's kind of in charge because someone's got to make the final call, uh, and then you got to kind of have like usually the world belongs to one person or the other. But sometimes you also have where where the world belongs to both of you because you came up with it together. Uh, like, for example, Gunrunner uh, that I, I wrote with John Brown. We came up with that idea together. We, we, we came up with that live on a panel. And um, that one, we basically, what we did on that one was it was both of our world. Um, however, basically, final call came to me because we were doing it through Bain, through my publishing house uh, that I was more well-known at. And so there was kind of that element there, but, but that was just a uh, process where we've just kind of bounced ideas back and forth continually. Uh, I'm doing one, I'm doing a collaboration right now with a guy named Steve Diamond. Uh, and on that one, I'm, I'm, I'm the senior guy just because I've been doing it a lot longer. Uh, you know, and, and so basically you just got to have kind of like figure out how you're going to solve problems, how you're going to decide. Like, big thing is when you're collaborating, you got to check your ego at the door, which is really hard as a writer, because, you know, we all think we're brilliant, otherwise we wouldn't be doing this. And uh, we think we're really good at telling stories, but sometimes the other guy is right, and you're wrong, and they have a better idea than you do. Uh, sometimes there's not really a right or wrong, there's just two different ways to do it. You just got to kind of figure out how to do that. But it's very important that you figure out kind of what your methodology is, 
I like collaborating for one major reason, though, is because they together it turns out an entirely different product than anything I could possibly do by myself just because it's two brains. And so it's just two different ways of looking at things. And sometimes they're going to come up with something that's like, wow, I never would have thought of that. And yeah. uh, it's really cool. Uh, and it just kind of depends basically. Uh, sometimes, sometimes the other guy, the sometimes the other guy is most of the ideas and other times it's you and just, you got to run with it. So I don't know. Basically every collaboration is going to be different. It's going to be based upon the relationship between the two. Well, like me and John Ringo, that's two alpha, you know, silverback gorillas that aren't used to being told no. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that, you know, that's a different kind of challenge. You know, when you got two, two famous guys uh, who both think they're right. And so it's just, I don't know, it's kind of an interesting, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy, but I, I, I really enjoy collaborating. The downside is it's actually, people think it's less work. Collaboration is more work. Um, it, it takes, it takes more effort to smooth together two people's work than it does just to create. Um, so that's, that's one thing that people don't realize. I think they think going into a collaboration is going to like make life easier for them. Uh, not necessarily. A lot of times well, it's, 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 more it's not effort. just somebody doing half the work. It's, it's, you have to go back and forth a lot. You know, I mean, I've, oh, I've yeah. been collaborating too, too, and my typical method has always been the, I write, we divide up the scenes, I write one, they write one, then we trade off and we polish each other's work kind of, but we always decide who's going to be the, the final voice to make sure that everything's consistent. But at yep. the same time, you know, you, you're going to, you're going to have those discussions back and forth about, well, I think you should change this, or I think we should do this, or you did this, but I did this. Now, how do we fix it? You know, those kind of things. And that, that, that of course, is something that, that when you bring another person is going to drag it out more than doing it internally with yourself. Absolutely. But I, but like you said, I think it can also be a lot of fun and uh, certainly come up with stuff that you never would have come up with on your own. So, you know, I I know you do a lot of that, and Bain does a lot of that, too, in general. So, you know, it's kind of a cool opportunity. And, and I know all the authors continue to tell me, uh, obviously, Monster Hunter Files was hugely successful. Um, I, of the 19 anthologies I've done so far, it's the most successful one I've ever done, as far as at least sales numbers go. Yeah, so, I've been in a lot of anthologies, and I can count on my fingers the ones that have paid royalties. You know, uh, like yeah. probably the fingers of one hand. And uh, and But that is crazy good. I mean, it's yeah, finally slowed down we've after made like way five more money than years. We've each made as editor more money than we had as the original budget. It's been incredible. Oh yeah, totally. And I know the individual stories out of that. It, it's uh, I, some of the people have made more off that story than they did off their first novels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, but it's cool because you you know we we let people you let people into your process and we did it and it was really a, a you know some interesting stories, interesting perspectives. And I know Steve Diamond was in that and. John Ringo yep. was in that, and Jim Butcher, and Jonathan Mayberry, and Faith Hunter. There's a lot of cool people that came on board, and so uh, it was hey, also another really good in a different way. Yeah, we had some really good talent in there. Yeah, well, let, so let's talk a little bit about you know we've mentioned you've mentioned it a couple times, so I wanted to give you a chance real quick to to tell people about Gunrunner. What is Gunrunner about? Oh, okay. So it's uh, that's collaboration with me and John Brown. It's a science fiction series. Well, it's a science fiction novel. It's just one novel so far. Um, basically, it's about a crew of a spaceship that 
smuggles high-tech weaponry between worlds, uh, specifically two worlds that aren't allowed to have those kind of things uh, for various reasons. And um, so it's kind of fun, action-adventure, big fighting robots, uh, awful monsters, uh, just like old-school space opera adventure. Um, And had a lot of fun with that one, actually. It, It came out really good. Uh, I, I, I really like this universe and I've actually used this setting to do a couple of short pieces of fiction. Like, I, uh, I mentioned, um, lost planet homicide. And I did another one called the tank called Bob for world breakers anthology. And, um, it's just a fun setting. Uh, it's about 30 colonized worlds. Uh, they travel between them via gate, but you know, it's big, big shipping lines. And, you know, we got into space pirates and, fun basically just a throwback it, we just went for a throwback action adventure sci-fi novel well and is this, and is this your first space really opera good. you've done so many genres is this the first space opera you did oh uh, yeah actually uh, so this would be the first straight up i mean cause i've done sci-fi but it's always been like different kinds of things but this is the first space opera right you know big spaceship fighting kind of thing that i've done and yeah. uh yeah which is kind of fun because it's one of my favorite genres and uh, so I finally got a chance to finally got a chance to work on that, and it's a hoot. <laughs> yeah. So, what's the best and worst advice you've ever gotten for for writing, like you know, either breaking in or just writing in general? So, best advice, and I, I tell this to everybody: the best advice I ever got starting out came from Kevin J. Anderson, and he told me, "Be prolific." Uh, and honestly, it was and, and to go more in depth. It's basically. The more you create, the more likely you are to create something truly awesome. Uh, and so just be prolific. Keep keep writing. Keep creating. I mean, I see these people, they'll write one thing, and they'll just keep polishing it and polishing it and polishing it and polishing it forever, but that's it. And then if they finally sell it, then it's the only thing they ever do. Uh, so the key is just, just keep being prolific. That's best advice. Worst advice, oh, my gosh, it's Legion. Um. I'm not sure if I can think of one in particular, but there's always just lots of bad advice. Anybody who tells you that there's one absolute way to do something like this, this is a rule. You can only do it this way. They're usually full of crap. Um, And if you see whatever their particular arbitrary rule is and you look at it, you can usually find 10 people who violate that rule and do fine. Uh, Yeah. So, yeah, avoid avoid that. Anybody who's really super dogmatic about what is allowed, that is not that does not follow the conventions. Eh, you know, that's usually the worst. Uh avoid that stuff. That's kiss of death. Uh that sucks all the fun out of everything. I mean, yeah. basically beyond basic grammar rules, <laughs> there's not really a lot of rules to this. Just other than make it awesome and may, if your fans like it, you can get away with anything, really. Yeah. Make it entertaining. Yep, yeah. that's the biggest key. Yeah. Uh, I hate the ch- I hate the bad advice is anybody who comes in and like establishes like you can only write about this kind of thing, you know, or you are not allowed to write about that kind of thing. I, no, no, uh-uh. forget that. That's that's terrible. That's that that kind of advice is kiss. That's career kiss of death is what that is. That's that sucks all the fun out of the process. Yeah, I've I've uh, 
totally agree with that. I think uh, I think your fans got to decide what you can and cannot write at the end of the day, you know. Yep. Uh, or, or at least what what will succeed, you know. Uh, I, I mean, for me, the the big one is just you know make an entertainment. Don't bore your reader. Like that's like the best. Yep. Don't be boring. Don't be confusing. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, what kind of future? Are there any kind of future projects that you're working on that we can uh, look forward to? Oh my gosh, I am so dang busy. <laughs> I've got, I've got uh, my to-do list is a mile long. Um, I have a bunch of projects. I'm currently working on a book called Servants of War with Steve Diamond. Yeah. That'll be out next year. Uh, and then after that, I got the Monster Hunter Memoirs Fever with Jason Cordova. And then I have uh, the the fourth and fifth novels in the Son of the Black Sword or the Saga of the Forgotten Warrior series. Uh, those are coming out. Those are those are next in the queue, uh, and I've actually got uh, two anthologies that I'm editing right now uh, with Casey Ezel that are follow-ups to Noir Fatale, which are noir sci-fi and fantasy stories. Uh, the first one of those, or the next one of those, will be called No Game for Knights. The theme is the hard-boiled detective. That'll be out next year, also. So long list. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, that that's not it. <laughs> There's that's just the immediate. Uh, stuff. So I, I'm a busy dude, but it's it's fun. I I, I don't I don't I don't get bored. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, at one point, at one point a few years ago, you told me that you had like 20 or 30 projects ahead already planned out. So I imagine that yeah. has changed because I mean, as long as you keep selling well, you're going to keep getting more opportunities. Yeah, I actually don't know what I'm at right now as far as under contract. But I think I think at one point I had 16. Things I had 16 books or anthologies under contract uh, at at one time. Yeah, and so it's basically basically like the next six to eight years of my life were totally booked if I didn't come up with another idea. And that was like, geez, probably like six or eight years ago. And I actually, so I actually don't know what I'm at right now. It's a lot. I uh, I basically will work till I die. I, I will never retire. Uh, I'm not wired that way anyway. Uh, but yeah, I, I will just keep on doing what I'm doing. I, I, I love what I do. Yeah. I mean, why retire as long as the brain's still working, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. If I don't finish a series, it's cause I died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the idea of retiring seems just, it, it, it's alien to me, you know, like it, it's not like I'm, I'm, I'm turning big rocks into little rocks and the body's going to give, you know, it's, it's as long as I have. Yeah, baby. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I might slow down, you know, sure. <laughs> uh, but I, I can't see stopping. No, nah, no, nah, nah. I mean, I might, I might go, I might go one book a year. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I only know one writer, and that's Robert Silverbrook, who's actually quit writing and just like shut his career down, because I think the creative creative side has to be fed. I mean, it just, it just, it that that doesn't die till you die. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I don't. I, I, cause I would do this for fun anyway. You know, if they didn't pay me, if no one read my stuff, I would still probably write. I would still write. I would still create stuff just because I enjoy it. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I move into genre, genres that don't pay. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so where can listeners, uh, you know, kind of follow your work on social media or on the web? Um, my blog, The blog is the best place to catch me. It's monsterhunternation.com. And that's because, you know, I can't get banned from there. Uh, so monsterhunternation.com, that's the best place. Uh, I am on Facebook. Uh, I'm on MeWe, uh, but MeWe, there's not as much going on there. Facebook, I am on there, but I'm I'm usually banned uh, <laughs> at any given time. 
but uh, they can follow me on there. Uh, Twitter, I just post links to my blog. So but basically, MonsterHunterNation.com is the best place to find me. Perfect. Perfect. Well, listen. Oh, 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 oh. I, for, I, with you. I, I did ahead, forget sorry. one thing. Um, I, actually, I very specifically, you can sign up for my newsletter on the blog. Because the newsletter, because like I said, I, I like to fight with people, and some people don't like that, and I'm political. My newsletter is just book stuff. Uh, it's only only related to books and what's coming out and that kind of books and stories and projects, that kind of thing. Uh, so today you can sign up for my newsletter on the blog. So thought I thought I'd get that in there for the people who don't enjoy the blog, where I'm like, you know, headbutting crazy people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, hey, it's good to chat with you again, and 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 it's great to have the chance to to talk a little bit more about what you do and all that. So we appreciate you you taking time with us, and certainly wish you continued success. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, this is John Talk. You know, it was kind of interesting to me to dig in a little bit more on Larry's process. It's been a while since I've talked to him because we worked together in 2016 and 17 on Monster Hunter Files, but we haven't talked as much since. So it was kind of fun. I actually got to meet him right before we did the recording in person when he was on tour here in Kansas City, and I've missed him every other time he's come. I've either been out of town or there's been some issue and I haven't been able to be there and so it was like weird to finally meet each other. So we sat down and had coffee and hung out for a while after his his signing. And then you know then we then you know had I said let's do the podcast. So uh, it was really fun to uh, to dig in with him again and kind of renew my acquaintance with a lot of it. It's an interesting series, and I know you haven't read it yet, but you should check it out. It definitely is very. Uh, I love the unique twists he did. Yeah, I definitely, you know, there was a lot of things that I liked about the interview. I mean, first, I'm always interested to hear kind of people go from, you know, take that turn from like self-publishing to actually having their books uh, published by, you know, some like Bain Books, right? So that that's always an interesting uh, journey to, to, to read about. And I think the other thing that I really dug about just, you know, his work is, like, you, you always hear that kind of like, hey, write what you know, right? But so, you know, it's interesting how he took like, hey, what if people like me, people I grew up, people I'm really familiar with, uh, and I, I take people like that and insert them in this world where there's like monsters and we're, you know, monster hunting, right? Which I thought was just like a really interesting take. An accountant who also happens to be a gun nut turns yeah, yeah. by monsters, which is exactly what Larry is. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, and it just, it, it really kind of felt like, okay, like write what you know uh, in this really kind of, you know, strange fictional world where monsters are a real thing. And and it, it, I think it's part of what, what gives him such a unique voice in that space. Well, what, yeah, well, one of the things that Larry does well, and I, ha- and I haven't read the, his, the novel, but I did edit the first short story in the universe of his epic fantasy series. And, and the thing about it is what he does really well is he takes the tropes and twists them in unique and interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And that makes it fun to read. To read, you know, when you when you when you get in there and the elves are, you know, living in trailer parks, and all of this kind of stuff, or the gnomes are, you know, these trash talking, tough guys with guns, you know, it, it it's like it, it makes you laugh because it's so different than what you expected, and yet yeah. it's much more interesting to read than yet another book with the same elves. And the same yeah. dwarves and the same gnomes over again, you know. 
there's so many of them out there that are the same. That's one of the reasons that kind of, you know, I've, I've told people this. I don't read a lot of epic fantasy anymore. It's just I have a really hard time. For one thing, the books are so freaking thick and so freaking long that they take yeah. me forever to read, and I just don't feel that excited about investing that much time in, in one book because I read two books a week on average, and that, that epic fantasy books can take, can take me a month. Yeah. It can take a long time to read because they're so thick. But also, I just get bored. They all blend together because there's so many of the same tropes over and over again that it, I just found my eyes glazing over after a while. Yeah, uh, I mean, so much of that is like you read it and you're like, oh, okay, you obviously were a huge Lord of the Ring fan, or you know, more recently, you know, you you've definitely watched a lot of Game of Thrones, you know, or you're uh, a Terry Brooks fan or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And 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 I look at it and I'm just like, who, you know. The thing about Larry's is the minute, from the minute I picked it up and started reading, the monsters were so different, and I was like, this is going to be fun because yeah. nobody's what you expect them to be. And so that was a whole lot of fun. And Larry, Larry's, you know, yes, he is a he is good at trolling his trolls on, online, and he does stand up to people, but he's actually a pretty nice guy, and he's not what a lot of people think he is. So he's kind of an interesting character in and of himself, and his characters are really well drawn. Uh, he writes women and men both well, and um, really diverse cast. And I think a lot of the different stuff he's done, you know, shows a lot of range. So I haven't read everything he's done. I'm getting ready to read Gunrunner because I've never read that. That's a new series. But I haven't read, like, the Dead Six series. And there's a few other things he's done that I haven't read. But I own most of them. I just I will get around to them eventually. But... But, you know, he's he's now, you know, seven books deep in the main Monster Hunter storyline. And there's like six or seven side books, including Monster Hunter Files, mm-hmm. which is an anthology I co-edited set in the universe. And, you know, it's going strong. And he's got a huge fan base that is really, really active. And, uh, you know, he loves to go out and interact with his fans and has a great time doing it. So, you know, I, I, it's fun to hear him talk about all that. It's fun to hear, you know, all the stuff that he is doing and I'm really glad we were able to have him on the show. Yeah, no, it was a great interview and yeah, I hope uh, everyone enjoyed it. As much as we did. In, in that regard, please check out facebook.com slash genre talk podcast. You can leave your comments, you can leave your thoughts, so on and so forth. Usually post an upcoming guest list. We're getting ready to kind of wrap for this season of shows. So there's not an opportunity for anybody to ask questions like we were giving you, which sadly nobody took advantage of this season. But hopefully we'll have other things developing in the future. You can check out the show notes and all of our episodes at anchor.fm slash genre talk podcast. And you should be able to... um, uh, watch, listen to all of our past episodes from season one and all of the episodes so far this season. Coming up on our next show in two weeks, we're going to have author Weston Oaks, and then we'll have author Livia Blackburn and Scott Sigler to close out the season. So that's what we have coming up. Anyway, we hope you've enjoyed it. We thank you for spending the last hour or so of time with us, and we hope you have a great two weeks until we see you again. This is Genre Talk. Genre Talk is hosted by Brian Thomas Schmidt and Philip Vargas. 
Music for Genre Talk is Your Guess Why by DJ Manifesto. Editing was by Randy Strew for Envision Podcasting. Copyright 2021 to Brian Thomas Schmidt and Philip Vargas.